his essay titled Poetry as Enchantment, poet Dana Joya had the following to say about this art form. The aim of poetry is to awaken us to a fuller sense of our own humanity in both its social and individual aspects. Poetry offers a way of understanding and expressing existence that is fundamentally different from conceptual thought. It is a different mode of knowing and communicating the world. There are many truths about existence that we can only express authentically as a song or a story. Conceptual language, which is the necessary medium of the critic and scholar, primarily addresses the intellect. It is analytical, which is to say, it takes things apart. Poetic language, however, is holistic and experiential. Poetry simultaneously addresses our intellect and our physical senses, our emotions, imagination, intuition, and memory without asking us to divide them. The text may be frozen on the page for easy visual inspection and analysis, but the poetic experience itself is temporal, individual, and mostly invisible. That's Dana Joya. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. This episode begins a short run devoted to poems and the poets that pen them. As I've confessed before recording with a few recent guests, I myself don't speak poetry. That is, I don't have all the technical terminology or conceptual capacities as might a seasoned reader, teacher, or practitioner of the craft. Nonetheless, I do read poetry and have always had an intuitive sense of its high worth. And there is something of an advantage to being a truly amateurish reader of the art form. Namely, I'm not encumbered or weighed down with unnecessary and cumbersome jargon or analytical preoccupations. Also, without fail, these guests have communicated how poetry is meant for the many, how it should speak to everything in our experience, from the mundane to the sacred, or even how within the mundane lies the sacred. And so, I'm very happy to introduce my guest for this episode, A.M. Juster, an award-winning and highly regarded poet, translator, and critic. His most recent books include John Milton's The Book of Elegies, St. Aldhelm's Riddles, and Slees and Slander. His first book of original poetry, The Secret Language of Women, won the Richard Wilbur Award. He has also won the Howard Nemiroff Sonnet Award on three separate occasions. Juster has a new book of verse just recently published, titled Wonder and Wrath, from Paul Dry Books, which you can find by clicking through today's show notes. Here he is talking about what got him writing poetry. I was taken by it at a pretty early age, um, and I think it's because my mother used to read to me a lot, um, and she would read poetry, um, and, and, you know, and I loved it. And I had elementary school teachers that were very encouraging of that desire. So I, I got fairly serious about it as an adolescent and um, was writing a lot and kept a journal and um, was still pretty serious about it in college. I took a couple um, poetry writing workshops, uh, seminars, one of which was quite good with um, Robert Shaw. The second one was just devastating for me. Um, It was a translator poet named F.D. Reeve, 
um, who was not a good person, Christopher Reeve's father, um, oh. who was not a good person, to put it mildly, hmm. um, and and basically was about as discouraging as he could be. And so that actually <laughs> um, worked, for, you know, from his point of view for quite a long time. And But I was feeling about when I turned 30, and my wife was, I think, feeling this too, that, um, you know, I was working and being a parent, but I really needed, you know, something else in my life. And she uh, encouraged one or two things that didn't work out very well for me. And then I read Dana Joya's review of uh, the Philip Larkin collected in the mm-hmm. – uh, the early nineties in uh, the Washington post. And I said, you know, um, that's really, this sounds like the kind of poetry I really enjoy uh, reading. Um, Mm -hmm. Not like a lot of the stuff, contemporary stuff that I've seen. I wonder, you know, first of all, I wonder if I'll like the book and I bought it and and loved it. And then I started thinking, can I teach myself to write that way again? And that was a little bit laborious because, you know, you didn't have the internet Mm-hmm. You didn't have the Westchester Conference. You didn't have a lot of the institutions that Dana Joya and others kind of built, um, you know, in, in the mid-90s and later to support formless poets. So it took a while. But mm-hmm. I taught myself, and then at some point I started feeling good enough about it to s- send it out, start sending it out. Like most poets, I made the mistake of probably sending it out six to 12 months before I should have. Okay. Um, but... You know, things started coming together, and I actually got my first break on the eve of the Westchester, first Westchester conference, sort mm-hmm. of the, the formless poetry Woodstock in 1995. <laughs> and I felt a little strange going to it. I hadn't actually had a conversation with anybody about poetry for, I think, 17 years at that point. Um, and I felt a little bit like an imposter. <laughs> but on the way down, I went to the post office to pick up my mail mm-hmm. and I got the notice that I was a finalist for the uh, uh, Howard Nemiroff Sonnet Award. Um, in those days, there was a long list and then they told you who won later. And I did finally win that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But that was a great confidence booster for me. And then the first Westchester conference where I met um, most of the you know, the original New Formless poets, and then a lot of the up-and-coming poets, many of whom became close friends, um, was just enormous for me. And again, in the pre-internet days, um, some of us would exchange draft poetry by snail mail and, and that kind of thing. And it, and it was, all of a sudden, I went from being very isolated and very unsure as to what I was doing to having, you know, um, wonderful support and I think growing confidence in what I was doing and, and eventually the a little bit more um, confidence in innovating within the um, uh, tradition. So um, so that's that's kind of it. But I think I just felt kind of a hole in my life that I needed to, to fill, you know, that poetry had always filled for me. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and so I basically I came back to it at about the age of 30. Okay. Actually, a little bit later than I, I guess. I guess I would have been about thirty-three. Okay, and just to you know, sort of get get on the inside a little bit. Uh, what would distinguish uh, this new formalist movement from, say, what you were trying to do earlier, maybe in college, writing free verse? And 
Yeah, I, well, I think it's, I mean, people tend to focus on the technique, and the technique is important. There's a reason why these techniques were so successful for so long. They, you know, they create a music that people resonate to. Um, and a lot of the con- our contemporary poetry is really lacking um, in music. Um, but I think more important than that, I mean, I think that a lot of the contemporary free verse poetry um, became has become very tiresome. I mean, it's um, there's not much musicality to it. There's not much in the way of ideas. Um, it's often somewhat nonsensical. But what you see more often these days is are things that are just obsessive reports of the the day in the life of the poet with a little bit of commentary tacked on. Um, or political tracks um, and that kind of thing. And it's just not very interesting. It's not very accessible to the average person. So one of the things that I think is a common denominator for most of the new formalists who were on the faculty in 1995 is not only were they um, very concerned about technique, I think they were very concerned about accessibility and walking that fine line. Nobody wants to be accused as as people do with formless poets of, of writing um, greeting card verse. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, I think there was a very strong, everybody felt a very strong need to try to write the kind of poetry that, you know, um, non-academic, non-literary readers could appreciate and to walk that line that, you know, Robert Frost and Auden and and poets of that uh, greatness were able to walk, um, and you just still see more Americans if you check social media quoting Frost and quoting Auden than quoting the people that in today's poetry community that has self declared their greatness and. Um, trying to take over the Poetry Foundation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, their work really leaves people cold. You don't see people, you know, other than other poets quoting it, you know, on social media and, and, and that kind of thing. It doesn't mean much to them. And so for me, it's it's both about technique, but it's about message. You know, it, it's having a message, and it's having a message that is at least somewhat accessible to people that are just interested in poetry, even though they haven't picked it for their career. Right. And I, I guess that leads me to another question and then, you know, referencing what you said before autobiographically, but also what you're saying now about accessibility. Um, and this is probably a, a, a bad formulation of the question, but you know, I guess if you're posed, posed it, um, it might go something like this, you know, what is, what is poetry for then for the non-academic or, or for anyone? Like what, what, what place should it hold or, or can it hold, I guess, in a person's life, even if it's just to, to read it? Well, I think it's, it's a complement or replacement in many ways for the sermon. Um, it, it's an opportunity to think about the world around you in a different way that improves your life, which is what a good sermon does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's basically the, for me, it's the same type of thing. And I think for the, most of the poets 
who I admire, I think they have that same sense that you have a platform where you have this remarkable chance to try to say something um, that can improve people's lives. And for me, you know, you want to grab that opportunity and make the most out of it. But, you know, that's not that's not standard thinking in the literary communities. I mean, I think there's almost sort of a disdain for the quote unquote average reader. Mm -hmm. Um, and they really define their audiences, you know, other people that, um, have MFAs and teach or try to teach and, you know, publish in the same journals and publish each other and, and that kind of thing. And it's a very sort of inbred, unhappy kind of place that for me doesn't produce the kind of work that we should be shooting to to write, you know. Um, and it's very hard to write like that. I mean, you know, if, if you're kind of holding Frost and Auden and, and people like that as your targets, you're going to fall short all the time. But that's okay. You can still fall short of that level of greatness and still produce work that you know, people will find meaningful. I mean, one of the great things about being a poet and finally getting some publication is I get occasionally, not often, but occasionally, I get these wonderful, heartfelt notes from people I've never heard of mm -hmm. saying how much some particular poem meant to them. Um, and that's a great thing. I mean, it's one of the things that, you know, keeps you motivated to keep doing it, particularly when it gets hard or you have a crisis of confidence or something like that. I mean, those kinds of things are just, just wonderful. I mean, it's one thing when one of your poetry friends drops you an email and says, oh, I just love this poem. Mm -hmm. You know, that's nice, but, you know, um, you don't know whether they're just being friendly and polite, but when you get the, the cold letter or email, it's a, it's a, it's a really nice thing. Right. Um, I'm getting a bit ahead of where I was thinking of going, but just what you were saying um, is making me think of your recent essay on uh, literary riddles, and mm -hmm. uh, one of the sub themes that I was, you know, that I was intrigued by in that essay was the notion of wordplay. Mm -hmm. And you know, it seems to me, uh, you know, referencing what you're saying earlier about you know writing for the the common reader, that one of the great effects of wordplay for the common reader is a certain delight in language. Yep. especially when so much of what we might encounter, especially if you're reading articles online is so, <clears throat> you know, it, it is so rudimentary and so almost utilitarian in its usage of, of language. So why do you see wordplay as being such a, a benefit to a reader? Well, I think um, this is something I think I believed for a while, but um, I don't think my thinking about it coalesced until um, I started translating riddles. I, I did um, uh, a translation and a commentary on the riddles of um, St. Aldhelm for mm -hmm. University of Toronto Press. And, um, you know, he was a remarkable man, um, a major political figure in the time in, uh, you know, 7th century Britain, um, really helped to re-evangelize uh, Britain, which had reverted largely to paganism after the Romans, you know, left the, uh, left the island. And um, there's lore about St. Aldhelm 
that's hard to know whether it's true or not. I mean, it was very traditional in Catholic literature to invent um, mythology about admired figures, you know, Mm -hmm. centuries later. But one of the persistent legends about Aldhelm is that in addition to being a, a Latin poet, he was also uh, he also wrote Old English poetry, and that he had this um, marvelous voice, and that he would recite um, Old English poetry, which the common people could understand, outside his church, in order to lure them into the church for the actual service. Mm-hmm. And I think wordplay um, serves a little bit of that same purpose. I mean, we all have a little bit of the child and most of us have a little bit of the child in us and, and, and love wordplay, mm-hmm. you know, if, different, if it's done well um, and it's in the right kind of setting and that type of thing. And what that does is sort of open you up, opens the audience up to looking at the rest of it and where the poet is going and just gets the, um, gets the audience interested in the work more broadly. So I, I look at wordplay I think the way that uh, Aldhelm supposedly looked at, you know, um, recitation outside the church, it's just, it's a tool to bring people in and enjoy what they will most benefit from. Mm-hmm. In that same essay you wrote, I was, you know, interested in, in the Tolkien bit. Um, and in, in The Hobbit, he's, you know, or the narrator at least is, is saying that, you know, everyone knows the answer to this riddle. And I feel, I feel so dense. I don't know if it's because in the, in the present world, we're so numb or, or so deprived of uh, the practice of trying to figure out riddles, but I feel so, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, only until the answer is revealed um, uh, as to figure out the riddle. Well, if it makes you feel any better, um, I find them hard. Okay. Too. I mean, I, in t- terms of it, when I was writing the commentary in particular, I looked at a lot of other riddles um, and, and I don't think I'm particularly good at guessing them. Maybe a little bit better than the average person because I'm sort of vaguely aware, at least for the you know late antique and early medieval period aware of some of the traditions so there's there's certain trains of thought that are recurring so that gives me a little bit of an advantage mm-hmm. but but really but really not that much i mean like i would like to think otherwise but um i'm not that good at it myself but you know if you're if they're too easy then that you know it's like a crossword puzzle right. um you know if it's too easy it's no fun but if it's too hard, it's no fun. So, you know, you're looking for that balance. And what you're trying to do, I think, as a writer of a riddle is make people think in a certain way. And, and that and that was certainly true for Aldhelm's riddles. I mean, he, um, you know, he's, his parents were probably pagans. Mm-hmm. And probably the majority of the people in the vicinity of his first parish were pagans. Um, and, you know, he wanted to, I think, use these riddles to get people, you know, um, interested in the church and some of the, and to accept some of the concepts of the church. And I think some of it was addressed even to fellow monks and, and, and that type of thing, because, you know, the church was very shaky in, you know, mid to late seventh century 
um, in uh, in Britain. And um, you know, one of the one of the themes, for instance, in the riddles is to try to show that miraculous transformations happen in nature. So you shouldn't be a skeptic about the miraculous transformations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, and it's really, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, interesting, you know, work that I think deserved to be read more broadly. And I was surprised as I was poking around looking for a project that, you know, there'd never been a literary translation. There really wasn't any scholarly discussion on about three quarters of of the riddles. So it was one of those kind of things where I actually got stuck in some ways doing the scholarly commentary because I needed to do it in order to understand what he was trying to say. Okay. Um, and and that initially I thought that would be kind of a burden, but it really became a pleasure because it was like a scavenger hunt of the seventh century and before. Mm. And um and I enjoyed finding out about these things. And it was, therefore, I think the only long translation I've ever done that I was sad when it was over. I mean, usually you get close to the end and you're fatigued and you've been doing the same thing for a long time and you really want to be done. Um, the Aldhelm one, which I spent um, very long time on, mm-hmm. um, depending on how you, you count it. I mean, it was... Um, probably eight years from when I started to publication. Yeah. Um, it, um, I was sad when it was over because I was enjoying the discovery and I was enjoying the fun. And um, it's also a little easier that it's broken down into small segments. You know, if you're translating something huge, which I'm do- trying to do now, um, the weight of the entire project um, often becomes a bit of a burden. But the riddles of all time were pretty short, except for the closing riddle, which was really more of a summation than a riddle. Um, and it was great fun. Maybe we could start looking at uh, this book of yours that's coming out in the very near future. Yep. Um, and I, I was, you know, thinking as I was looking at it, um, you know, picking a book title is is a hard task. Um, of course, people can go for low hanging fruit, but the, you know. F- Get a great book title, I think, is a great achievement. And it would seem to me that picking a title for a book of poems is even more difficult than your average fare. So why did you settle on, um, or how was it settled upon to call the book Wonder and Wrath? Well, so I'd been, this is my 10th book, but it's only my second book of quote unquote serious poetry of my own. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time. It's been 17 years since um, I had a similar volume. And so the the manuscript's been in evolution for a while. And I'll confess that in the early stages, it had a couple different titles, Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't quite happy with them. Um, And at some point, this phrase, uh, which comes from um, one of the poems just kind of hit me as, you know, this is sort of, um, this covers the gestalt of a lot of these, um, these poems. And it, and it has, it's a phrase that has a number of echoes for me at some point, you know, two or three years after, um, I published the poem from which it came, all of a sudden it hit me. 
and you would think that I like would have thought this through in advance, but you know, um, I suppose it's a good thing that your own poems can be um, matters for discovery. I think there's a little hint from the Iraq War there, the shock and awe, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's and there was something something about that phrase that struck us at, at the time, um, um, you know, maybe horrified, um, but but struck us. And um, I think there's a little echo of that in the phrase, and I think it does cover a lot of the sense of how I and a lot of people are feeling about the world today. I mean, there's just amazing things happening that are improving lives with mostly with technology. Um, but sometimes that technology um, produces awful consequences as well. Um, and we do live in a world where because of the increased communication, it's much easier for hate to thrive, um, you know, both on the right and on the left. Um, and so for me, the phrase seemed to capture a lot of what I see in the world around me, and therefore it colored, you know, that that worldview colored a lot of the poem. So it seemed like the right, fin- I think it was my third try probably at a title, mm-hmm. um, it, it finally seemed the right label to, to, to use for the book. I think you chose the perfect poem to, to start the volume off with. Um, I'm a sucker for sort of... <laughs> erotically themed poems about tomatoes. <laughs> so you hit, yeah. my, you hit my sweet spot with heirloom. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It, it was, a, um, well, I was going to say it's a strange one for me, but, but maybe not. It's a little bit probably a return to 15, 20 years ago. I went, um, Bill Bear, who ran the formalist for many years, which, um, published me a lot. Um, confessed to me at one point that one of the things he uh, liked about my work is that um, it would take the unexpected turn, that he saw a lot of stuff that was very competent and thoughtful, but very predictable. Um, and then he had the feeling when when uh, uh, he saw my, my pumps that there would be you know, something unexpected in, in the, the subject matter or the turn or something like that. I was, I was surprised. He did a sonnet anthology a number of years ago and I thought, well, okay, you know, I've, I've won the Nemiroff three times. I was a runner up five times. He's going to pick from those eight poems. And one of the ones he didn't, one of them was, was a poem that I didn't, um, even put in the first book. I've never put it in, in in any of my books, but it's it's about pro wrestling, um, and and so that that sort of quirky aspect, I guess, of what I do. Um, certain people, including my friend Bill Bear and former editor, um, seem to enjoy. So yeah, uh, I thought it was a great one. It drew me in right away. I have to say that. Um, and you know. I, it's interesting. I mean, that's, you know, a sort of simple experience of something growing on your windowsill. Um, yeah. So do you, I guess, is that, are you just always sort of in a state of awareness or, or oftentimes in a state of awareness of what would make for a sort of uh, the subject matter of a poem or is it just kind of ebb and flow? And 
Yeah, I try to be. I think I had a little hard time finding um, what Tom Gunn called the occasions for poetry mm-hmm. when I was first writing. And so I think some of the some of the work just felt more like exercises than, than poems. And I think I was able to shed that. But it's it's also been harder to find, you know, those occasions of poetry. Um, and I think now, you know, in recent years, I'm mostly just trying to collect things in my mind that strike me as remarkable in some way, mm-hmm. um, even in a quiet, subtle way. And and hold them for longer. You know, when I was first writing, if I had an idea for a poem, man, even if it was in the middle of the night, you know, I'd get up and I'd go right to the notebook. And I don't yeah. do that anymore. Um, or most of the time, I don't do that anymore. So I've got two or three poems now in my head that I've just been been hanging there for six months. And, and they haven't really seemed to want to get out yet. Um, and, and I'm indulging that. I'm waiting until... Um, I've got a better idea was, you know, why is this, why, what is this event that seems so significant to me um, in some way? Why is it significant? What, what does it tie into in a larger kind of way? Um, you know, I don't want to do the kind of Frank O'Hara poems sort of, you know, I did this, I did that. I just, mm-hmm. I desperately try not to write those kind of poems, but I try to take, you know, maybe one or two things that could be in the Frank O'Hara poem and and try to spend more time describing them, getting people to think about them, and then trying to get the poem to take the audience to someplace interesting. And that's kind of what I do. And it's one of the reasons I don't write very many original poems a year. I mean, people, I've published a lot in recent years, but a lot of it is translation. And I probably... You know, in a in a bad year, published two or three poems. In a good year, I published four to six, which is you know why it was so long from the Secret Language of Women in 2003 to Wonder and Wrath um, in September of this year. Um, and probably it will take me a long time, you know, to get another book of original poetry. And I'll just keep it keep my fingers crossed that I live that long. So you know. <laughs> Um, now, when you're allowing the experience to germinate within you, are you trying to, and you could be doing all this at once, but trying to allow it to sort of become less opaque and more clear and the, have the water sort of, you know, become less cloudy? Or are you trying to wait for what, what form it should take um, so as to make it presentable to readers? I'm not, I mean, it's a very good question. And, and the answer is, I'm not really sure. And I think it does vary from poem to poem. Um, I think sometimes if something seems clear, you want it to seem less clear. You want people to see the complex, uh, complexities and the subtleties that maybe they haven't thought about. Um, and sometimes it's the opposite. You're seeing something that's complicated and confusing, and you're trying to go right to the heart of the matter. So there's, I don't have, I'd like to think, I don't really have a template, so I don't have an absolute method um, for these things. Um, but but it is true that I've, to the extent that I do, it's changed a lot from the beginning. And this, um, I think, the me of 20 years ago would be very surprised that I was having 
ideas for poems and was not writing them down immediately. <laughs> right. Um, I'm looking at threat levels right now. Um, yeah. Which is a shorter poem. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm struck trying to figure out, and I have, I have an intuition of it, but, you know, thinking, trying to think more explicitly about what you were trying to do here. Um, so could you maybe talk through that poem a little bit or, or is it best left for the reader to read? I'm not sure. Um, well, it's short. So why don't I, I give it a, a read and then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll try to talk about it. Um, yeah, that'd be briefly. great. Mm-hmm. Um, threat levels. The level yesterday was red, the color on the splatter dead. The level for today is green, although the chatter stays obscene. Tomorrow's level will be gray as light is lost throughout the day. So I I think, um, like most um, Americans, um, the whole notion of homeland security, which is so prominent in our lives is something that we didn't grow up with, mm-hmm. you know, at all. I mean, if you're my age, um, you had, didn't grow up with it. And so it's, it's sort of new and different and unsettling. Um, and at some point, I think the attempt through language to make this seem routine and orderly was something that I began intuitively to rebel against mm-hmm. um, because I know these things are are messy and complicated and really impossible to make very good predictive statements about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, I think what this is trying to do in a somewhat oblique way, this is probably more oblique than most of the poems in in the book was to um, just say that if Homeland Security and uh, agencies like that are trying to get you to think in a certain simplistic way about the world, you should resist that Mm -hmm. and you should, should think about it in a more subtle complex and intellectually diverse way. Right. It becomes tough. I'm looking here now at autoimmune attack and the last, the last sentence is I ignore the news, um, which, you know, is a sentiment I think shared by a significant number in in the present day. And that may, you know, have accelerated in the early two thousands. It's, I, I, I am of that sentiment myself. I, I yeah. you know, and, and kind of what you were just saying, it seems so difficult, almost impossible to try to come to a real sense of <clears throat> what the real situation is um, for a variety of reasons. But um, this is, this, this, this poem definitely has layers as well. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. It's, and it's a poem that um, <laughs> in some ways was, is bizarrely predictive because um, I wrote this shortly after I left the government I, and I left the government because I have a serious autoimmune disease and I've had okay. spinoff diseases as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this really was a um, trying to come to terms with 
you know, my body turning on itself. Um, right. And but the last line that struck you in the time I wrote this, which probably was uh, 2013, 2014. Um, the I ignored the news was um, uh, a fictional fictional posturing to make a point. Um, but I would say, and because at that point in time, I was writing regular op-ed pieces on health and welfare issues, occasionally other issues, and I was a regular commentator locally on um, public radio and, and television, um, and occasionally was doing national network stuff and that kind of thing. And so I was definitely keeping up with some intensity to do that. Um, this, the last few years, I sort of feel like I had a, an enormously good grasp of Newtonian physics when mm -hmm. it, you know, the old politics and was pretty good at it. But now I feel all of a sudden there's been this sort of shift to something like quantum mechanics mm -hmm. where you have all these results that seem bizarre and unpredictable if you're looking at it from a Newtonian perspective. And, and that I, I, I started really had a, I'm a pretty confident guy, um, but I started losing my confidence going on public radio. And, you know, they say, well, what do you think is going to happen? And I've started, I was starting to be wrong often enough that I started to lose confidence in it. And then as it got uglier and uglier, I just started feeling like I don't want to play this game anymore. And, and particularly having worked in the White House for two presidents where a big part of the job was protecting the office of the presidency, uh, the office of the president, mm -hmm. in a way that was very mindful of what happened with Watergate. Right. Um, to watch kind of what's going on in this White House has just been agony. And so to a large extent, I've started dealing with it by not paying attention anymore. So in a weird way, this, this poem, The Final Line, was not an accurate description of my own state of mind at the at the time, but it became so very shortly afterwards. It's <laughs> a little, little little weird. So yeah, well, I thought it was. I I was just struck when I first read the poem, not just by that line, but sort of. I mean, to me, it just seemed like a a sort of layering of your own health with the health of the nation, and um, yeah. and that was. I thought that was rather striking. Yeah, um, thank you. And then, you know, I was interested with the, with the back matter, um, you know, the translations and, um, you know, just this past summer, I started reading some Rainer Maria Rilke. So, um, yep. is, is that a poet, a poet that you personally enjoy to read or have benefited? Yes, from? I, I, I do. And, and like a lot of poets, I, when I was first, um, trying translation more as an exercise. Rilke was one of the people that I went to and thought about taking more seriously. But there are um, so many um, Rilke translations that you sort of at some point say, well, you know, what do I have to add? Mm -hmm. um, what I have played around with, you know, what a lot of people don't appreciate about Rilke is that he wrote voluminously in French and a little bit in Russian 
as well, original poetry. Um, so I've taken some cracks at the French poetry, which has been largely overlooked, um, and have found it extremely difficult to render up to my standards. They're, they're formal poems, but they're very short lines. There's a lot of exotic vocabulary that when you look at what the equivalent words are in English, there's nothing that rhymes with them. Mm-hmm. There is in French, but there isn't in English. Um, and so they're maddening to try to get. And they're also, what's fascinating, at least to me, is they're very different poems from the, the German poems. I, I mean, as a translator, you know, you, you start to develop these probably weird notions of, of sort of the texture of, of a poem and, and, and who the analogs would be in English and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt with Rilke's German poems, um, they reminded me of, you know, in the fourth grade when we were taught about Manifest Destiny and all that kind of stuff. Um, I remember being taught several times about pemmican, you know, this very dense mixture of meat and nuts and berries and it's dried that loaded with protein and, and you know, what uh, indigenous Americans and then the rest of us out in that territory would would eat to survive. Mm-hmm. And, and Rilke's German poems always felt that way to me. They're so dense. <laughs> um, and there's so much in them. They, you know, in my own mind, I thought of them as pemmican. But then you get to the French poems. They're very airy and fluffy. And I've started thinking of them like these chiffon-like cookies that they make in France mm-hmm. um, and, and that kind of thing. So they're very different. And so the, the tone, I mean, if you were if you were actually good at translating Rilke from German, you might find the move to the French poems very, very hard. Um, and I, and, and they are very hard because they're really, I mean, there's a, um, there's a, there's a very good, um, uh, literal translation from Bo editions, um, which is helpful with some of the exotic vocabulary and that kind of thing, but it doesn't really read on the page uh, in English, the way that the poems come across in, in French most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't able to do it well. I understand that some other people have given it a crack. So the only um, remnant of that you see in this book is um, I did go through um, Rilke's French notebooks hmm. where there are many false starts to these types of very short, often airy poems. Mm-hmm. Um, that he was doing. Although a lot of the ones that he stopped in the notebook were a little bit more somber. Okay. Um, and so what I did um, is I basically wrote endings to the um, uh, the unfinished um, French poems, and and you know gave the, the beginning of the French, and you know translated the the French as far as it went, and then tried to come up with as much of a Rilke-like ending as I could. And I've enjoyed that. I mean, I think one of the things that's useful as a poet is to try to submerge your own personality a little bit um, and, you know, imitate the voice of great ones to kind of see how they used their tools and what their worldview looked like. So I've done a fair amount of that. You know, I did, in the first book, I did one basically in the voice of Auden um, Auden, actually, Auden imitating Byron. 
Okay. Um, and I have a whole book of Billy Collins imitations with satirical intent, mm-hmm. subversive intent. Um, and at the end of this book, um, you know, I've also got a, uh, a Bob Dylan imitation sparked by his Nobel Prize um, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So, so I've enjoyed doing that kind of thing. Um, but, um, and I think it's a valuable thing to do to really kind of try to get in several layers down in what a poetry, what a poet is doing. I think that one of the problems with the way poetry is taught in college today is it's very superficial. You know, you, you, you get the gloss and there's even sort of a celebration of the, the superficial service surface in, uh, you know, poets like Ashbery um, and, and, and poets like that. And I am, um, um, I think it's important to try to to dig down and and really get the get the texture um, at a much deeper level than what's usually taught mm-hmm. in school these days. You know, thinking of the, the act of translation, do you, have you found certain languages more apt at expressing certain sentiments or or moods or feelings or thoughts than others, or are some more naturally suited towards poetic expression? Um. I think it's difficult to beat Italian, okay. um, which is why I sucked it up to learn it at the age of, uh, what was I, 42. Okay. Um, it's naturally beautiful. It has, you know, it has wonderful rhythms to it. Um, it is rich in rhymes. Um, so it is very easy, or relatively easy, for a poet to rhyme compared to English or German. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, I've, um, in terms of just being in love with the language itself, um, I think that on most days, Italian, you know, does it for me. Um, Latin, which I've done the most of, is kind of a frustration because, you know, we, you know, even classicists today can't really feel the texture the way that they did 2,000 years ago. Um, You know, we can't hear, you know, their scansion is not by stress, it's by syllable length, and it's just something we can't hear. Um, You know, even classics professors can't really hear. Um, but we know that they did at the time that even average Romans could hear it because there would be low-level entertainment called mime theater, um, which is kind of like vaudeville, you know, okay. something like that. And um, it wasn't as well written as um, Terence or, you know, other... Um, other playwrights would do so they'd make fairly regular um metrical errors and the audience would boo or the equivalent (laughs) of what you know romans would do and it just sort of you know i've thought about that and and so you know so there's always i think with the latin poetry there's some feeling that there's you can't cross all the distances um i also you know the uh, Another language I took up later in life, which I really enjoy, I found to be the hardest 
um, is um, is Middle Welsh, and I took it up really for one author, I, one poet I fell in love with. Um, is that the the the? I'm just, I'm looking right now on my screen. I have to her husband for beating her. Is that the yes, author? Yes, okay. that's, yes, that's Gwerful Mehen. Um, and um, and that poem is probably the first poem by a woman objecting to domestic violence. Um, and even though it's short, it's also sort of complicated. It's, it's, I think it's been literally translated by scholars. And I think it misses one of the ambiguities in the original poem, because in the original poem, it's not entirely clear with the pronoun, whether she's talking about her own husband or someone else's husband. Hmm. And so, you know, and that's one of the tricks of translation is, well, how do you deal with ambiguity? And I think too many translators, well, just try to resolve it. I think he was or she was trying to say X. But mm-hmm. my view a lot of time is if you have a really great poet and there's something ambiguous in there, they wanted that amb- ambiguity in there. They wanted you mm-hmm. to think about it. So I've translated that one a little bit differently from you know the couple of versions um, that are out there. But she was a remarkable uh 15th century poet, um, a lot of um, courage. And so I, I love work on that. I think when I get past my current project, my, my plan is to get back to the Middle Welsh. Um, that's probably a couple of years away. But um, that, um, uh, that poem is in the earlier volume I have of Light Verse called Sleaze and Slander. Um, mm-hmm. And then I've got the, you know, the, the very short, important poem from her in this new volume of mine. Right. Wonderful. Uh, would you be uh, willing to offer us a reading of a poem of your choice or a number? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So this is a fairly new one. Um, ran in National Review uh, just a few months ago um, called Behold. Um, and it's, um, it's in blank verse. Um, it's got an off rhyme, uh, couplet at the end to give it a little bit of closure. Um, but it's a bit of a, an experiment. I've, I've been, um, reading a poet named Carl Phillips, who's very different from me in most regards, but is a former classics, um, teacher who's very interested in syntax and complicated syntax and using syntax in ways that have gone out of fashion in sort of the brutal short lines that have been popular in the last 50 years or so. So like a lot of the Carl Phillips poems, um, this poem is all one sentence despite its its length. So <laughs> let me sure give this a try. Behold, let the state highway cleave cold, stubbled fields so that both empty lanes extend like grace, and let prim churches in the ratio of seven Baptists to every Methodist appear with rigid regularity close to the road, their dead even closer, with small, flat, rusting markers on most graves. Then drive another 20 minutes more to see the trees defer to furrowed soil, except for this one rise where pines aspire to reach where crows and turkey vultures rule, and let those who have nursed the dirt behold the blush and burgundies of morning clouds that do not stifle early rays of sun from blanketing the hillside's eastern slope, where mothers, fathers, aunts, and uncles wait 
and gravestones challenge that unearthly light. Mm. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah, the the image of um, one of the very first poems I wrote was a Vermont-based poem. Mm -hmm. This this comes from a drive through South Carolina. Um, but the notion of um, your cemeteries being right there on the road so that people pass them and are forced to think about them on a regular basis is something that struck me again in one of my very first poems and then came back to me again, you know, in this poem. This one poem is, I think, very different from the one that I wrote 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, but um, but it is an interesting thing about, you know, we do... Um, we do try to hide away death and death and, and our cemeteries are different from mm -hmm. the way they've been in the past. And, and, and that what's thinking about all that. Um, my friend Jody Bottom has written um, at length on this topic, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of help, help this poem come together. Yeah. I, it's interesting how, um, <clears throat> you know, even the name for certain, cemeteries uh won't include that word um, yes there'll be memory gardens or whatever and um yeah i think that's a, a disservice in a way i live a mile away from a gorgeous cemetery that in the 1830s was the largest tourist attraction in the united states wow. um and, and i learned this from a special edition of the journal the public interest in the mid 80s that did a an issue on public spaces. Mm -hmm. And what made it so popular was um, it, it basically picked up on romanticism. Mm -hmm. And instead of simply stacking graves in a very utilitarian way with a flat gray gravestone and very mm -hmm. little adornment or everything, um, they fashioned this enormously beautiful garden and started um, uh, garden landscape um, and started encouraging elaborate statuary and mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's an ex extraordinary place. And now you go, and if you don't sort of explain the background, people will say, well, okay, you know, this is nice, but I've kind of seen this before. Well, you've seen it before mm -hmm. because it's been, been so imitated. Mm -hmm. um, so we went through sort of a transformation um, where we started thinking about these places as places where people would want to go and remember and meditate and think, mm -hmm. which generally I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you look at the more modern cemeteries, I think it's, we want to hide this away. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and they're not places for memory and meditation so much anymore. And I think we've lost something. Um, with that. So that's kind of the, that's, that's the backdrop in, in many ways for the poem. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Um, is there anyone that sticks out, any other poems that stick out from the volume that you'd like to provide? To um, well, let's see. So the last of the Nemiroff Sonata Word poems is one called No, uh, mm -hmm. which Frederick Turner picked in uh, 2006, if I remember correctly. And um, it's, um, it's an anti-suicide poem, and um, the um, it was written 
when uh, a poet who I knew uh, a little bit, um, I feel like I should have known better because we kept sort of like just missing each other in lots of terrain. He was very talented. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, uh, but I, I, I just felt that she had gotten caught up with the, um, uh, kind of the celebration of self-destruction in mm-hmm. uh, poets in the last 50 years, you know, the Plath and Sexton and, and Berryman and, you know, um, on and on and on and on. Um, and the way poets talk about those people, they, they sort of glorify that, that decision, which I think it is a misplaced decision, very cruel mm-hmm. um, to the people around you. Um, and, but I was a little worried when I wrote it that people would figure out who I was writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually changed the gender of the, um, the poet in this poem because it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it right. was sort of instigated by a particular instance, but there's no reason to particularly pick on her because there's loads and loads of examples. It was just this, on this particular one, I kind of broke and said, you know, I've got to say something mildly unpopular mm-hmm. um, sure. about all this. So, no. No, not this time. I cannot celebrate a man's discarded life and will not try. These knee-jerk elegies perpetrate plas nightshade lies. Why should we glorify descent into a solipsistic hell? Stop. Softly curse the waste. Don't elevate his suffering to genius. Never tell me he will live on. Never call it fate. Attend the service. Mourn. Pray. Comfort those he lacerated. Keep him in your heart, but use that grief to teach. When you compose a line, it is a message, not just art. Be furious with me, but I refuse to praise him. No, we have too much to lose. Thanks to A.M. Juster for his time, insight, and conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with him and definitely encourage you to check out his new volume of verse, which again is titled Wonder and Wrath from Paul Dry Books. It's available at the finest booksellers, where you can click through today's show notes to grab a copy for yourself. In our next episode, I interview Mary Ann Miller, Editor-in-Chief of Presence, a journal of Catholic poetry. Look for that one to appear in a few weeks' time. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in.